In honor of God's word, please stay seated. I'm reading such a long passage today, and I really want you to focus on it, then we'll stand for the prayer. So here we go. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has seven, ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants, hired servants, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. And be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost 
and is found. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? Father, I want to thank you for every single person that's here, everyone that's watching online. Lord, I thank you. This message, everything I'm going to say in this message is easy for our minds to understand. But Father, we need something way beyond that. We need our hearts to be opened to get the revelation of your love, your forgiveness, and your salvation and how it works. Open our hearts, we pray. Hide me behind the cross so that we can hear you, see you, and respond to you. Please, God, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we are in a series called Uniquely Luke, which is the passages that are only in Luke. Well, it turns out that the story of the prodigal son, one commentator says, it is the crown and flower of all of the parables. It is the parable of all the parables. One commentator says, Luke 15 is the gospel within the gospel. It is the most central, it is the clearest picture of salvation, of the Father's heart, of our response to the Father, of how the whole thing works. And so lots has been done around the story of the prodigal son. So this painting hangs in my dining room. And so I get to see this every meal. And, and, and it's about the full trinity in redemption. So you've got, here's the father dressed up in Jewish clothes. You've got the son, his shadow that he gives is the cross. And the Holy Spirit, this, the son here is the dove. It, 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 it's as a dove. And so this is going to be up here later. You can come and look at this. I just, I absolutely love this painting. So I want to give you three truths from Luke chapter 15. Here's number one. The value of one. God goes after the one who is lost. A sheep that is lost has the same value as a sheep that you have found. It doesn't lose value because it's lost. With the 10 coins, just because one of the coins is lost doesn't mean it's lost any value. And so it is with the human race. Just because somebody is away from God, somebody's in crazy, the word prodigal means extravagant wastefulness. Just because somebody's out there and basically ruining their own life doesn't change their value in the eyes of God. God loves everybody in the human race and everyone in the human race is valued by him. The value of one Truth number two, all are lost and need saving. So here's the, here's the two groups. Verse one, there are two groups that Jesus is speaking to. One are the tax collectors, which they were really despised by Jews because they, they collected taxes for the Romans. And they overcharged so that they could get rich off of their own brother's back. So the tax collectors and the sinners, sinners, <laughs> Sounds like, well, we're all sinners. Well, sinners was a designation for people that were no longer trying to keep the law. They had already tried and couldn't do it, and so we're not even trying anymore. They're, they're overt sinners. The other group there 
are the Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separate ones. These are the ones, they do keep the law and they're, they're careful to keep the law and they're separate from others and they're grumbling because of Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners. So there's two groups that Jesus is speaking to. So he gives these three stories and in the first one, only one out of 100 is lost. The good shepherd goes and looks for the one that's lost, but only one is lost. And he's explaining to them the value of these that, that are away from God, that everybody knows are away from God. The second parable, now it's one in 10 are lost. It's a higher percentage are lost. One in 10 are lost. And then in the third parable, it's 50%. One in two are lost. But then something happens at the end of the parable when he talks about the older brother. It turns out that the older brother himself is lost too, just in a different way than the prodigal's lost. So it's actually, everybody's lost. Everybody needs a savior. And when you put them together, you see what he's doing. That in the first parable... The one that is lost, the sheep that is lost has strayed far away and the shepherd goes to look for them. Well, that's a picture of the sinners and tax collectors. They have strayed. They are overtly away from God. The second one, the coin is lost within the house. In the house, but lost in the house. This is the Pharisees. They're around religion, but they are lost as well. The value of one, all are lost and need saving. And then finally, third truth, the joy in heaven when people repent. Jesus said that when this shepherd brings that sheep back, that there's a great party because he has found the one that is lost. And he said, and it is the same way in heaven when a sinner repents. Even though every human being is loved and valued, no matter whether they're with God or not, we only bring joy to God when we come home. In the second story, it's, there is joy in the presence of the angels whenever a sinner repents. So I thought about that this week. Do you know why the angels rejoice at repentance? Well, who knows if this is it? I'm just going to give you my thought. See, the angels that fell, a third of the angels fell. This is a story that's untold in the Bible, but the reality of it is all over the Bible. It's where demons come from. It's where Satan comes from. Anyway, that's another story. But Angels are not invited to repentance. They were not deceived in the fullness of God's goodness, his beauty. They chose to go their own way and be apart from it, and they can't repent. So when the human race, because of deception, is given a second chance, and when the angels see somebody that chose not God turn around and come back and choose God, they're astonished by repentance and by God's forgiveness. In the presence of the angels, there is great joy. But then thirdly, the Father's joy. In the third one, we're not, instead of him saying this is what happens when a sinner repents, we're shown what repentance is. That what repentance is, is when you come back 
home to God. When you realize your lifestyle is away from God and you make a decision to come back to him. That is what repentance is. So it's the spring of 2010. We, there had been many prophecies about City Church, about Lake City Church and Mad City Church going together and becoming City Church. And both elder boards had talked about it. And before we did a joint meeting of the two elder boards, because once you do that meeting, <laughs> if you don't go through with it, you're going to have so many hurt and disillusionment. And we thought, we thought, and, and then it doesn't happen. And so we were trying to be very, very careful. But both elder boards had, had approved the idea of meeting together. But first we wanted Pastor Heckman's blessing. And so in the spring of 2010, John, John Ruck was the interim pastor here. I was the pastor at Man City. We went together to the National Convention. We presented this to Pastor Heckman, who had pastored here for many years, and Tom Alexander, who's a good friend and overseeing elder even to this day, and just presented the idea of putting these two churches together and wanting their blessing. And, you know, they looked at it, they talked about it, the difficulties of it, but they gave us their blessing and they prayed over us and something happened in me. And I'm just like, to God, I don't want to do this. I just don't want to do this. I know there was prophecies, but maybe, can't we be city church without it being an organizational oneness? Can't we be one together and in the spirit be called city church without there being a sign out front that says city church? Here's why I, I just didn't want to do it. Lake City Church had a bunch of debt I hate that. I don't like it when church is about the money. That really bothered me. And then the second thing is just the thought of it with just the elders at Mad City Church and all kinds of pain because there was lots of pain between Lake City and Mad City and some people that left Mad City go to Lake City and there were accusations. And, and I'm like, to put two churches, we're going to deal with so much pain and so much human relationship stuff, which I mean, that's fine, but that's not what I signed up for. I signed up for Jesus. I, I want to be about Jesus. I want to be about his presence. And the idea of having a bigger church just means more trouble for the pastor. And I, I just said, here's what I said. I said, to do this, to, take, to, put the, to, to put the two boards together and talk about this, I have to have something from heaven. So, something unmistakably from heaven, I have to have one more thing. And I'm sorry to ask it, Father, but I've got to have one more thing. So I'm on, the, I'm on the plane home from National Convention. And God takes me to Luke 15. And I saw something that I had never seen before. The first parable is about the shepherd's joy in getting that sheep back. The second parable is about the woman's joy. It's certainly not about the coin's joy. It's about the woman's joy. And the third one is not about the prodigal's joy. It's about the father's joy in having his son come back. But the father's joy isn't full. At the end of Luke 15, one of his sons is not in the party. And Luke 15 ends and the father's joy is not full. A father's joy will never be full until the children are together in his house. And God spoke to me. Here's what he said. Mad City Church is the prodigal son. 
And everything about Man City Church was the prodigal son. It was, it was come as you are. It was a message of mercy for Madison. It was a church made up of broken people. Shane had one message. God loves you in your weakness. God loves you in your weakness. God, it was a one string guitar. He said, and I'll play it every week. And, and it was all about coming home and receiving forgiveness in our brokenness. That was Mad City Church. And he said, Lake City Church is the older brother. Lake City Church was founded in 1931. It is, it was an older congregation and it was all about mission. It was all about serving and missions and maturity and, and he said, I am bringing the two together for my own joy. He said, the mark of the, the, mark of the new church is going to be joy. And what that joy is going to be is an overflow of my joy. Now, this is embarrassing. Here's why I knew it was God. Here's why it's, this is very embarrassing. <laughs> I had never thought about how God felt about it. Everything was about people. It was about how I felt about it. How these people and these people and everybody's been hurt. And, and I knew I, only God could speak this. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my, that is so beautiful. I'll pursue it. And what I felt in an overwhelming way was this. See, God, God doesn't just go out to the prodigal. He also goes out to the older brother. That God loves the prodigal and he loves the older brother. And that, that what he wants is he wants to bring prodigals and older brothers together all over the body of Christ. And that he was going to give this church authority to do it because we actually did it. And so this, this, this whole story is central to what City Church is and what we're supposed to do in bringing the body of Christ together. That's actually why we showed the Hope Night thing today is because God's bringing the church in this region together for his own joy. Hallelujah. So that's point one. Here's point two. The revelation of the father. Jesus did not just come to die for our sins. He came to bring us to the father, to reveal the father. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. He said, the words I speak are the father's words. The, 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 the acts that I'm doing, the works that I'm doing are the father's works. Jesus came to reveal the father to the human race and to, to bring people back to the father. He knows the wounds that people have at just the name father. He anticipated people's response to father God both because of their own fathers and because of the Old Testament. And here, so here's what he says. This is John 16, verse 26 and 27. He says, in that day you will ask in my name. And he says, and I don't say that you'll ask me and I will ask the father on your behalf because the father himself loves you. The father loves you himself. Here's what he says in John 17. He's praying and he says this to the father. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even 
as you have loved me. The father doesn't just love his people. He loves people that are still in the world, still are away. And, but there has to be a revelation of this because the very name father brings, brings thoughts to our minds. Psychologists call it the father wound. In any way, our fathers were not like God the father. There, there, is, there is a wound and and it, it can look very different with different people, but it's hard to relate when that wound is in place. And so God wants to identify the wound and us to identify, okay, this is, this is how my dad was different than God the Father. We need to identify it because there's a brokenness there. There's a misunderstanding there. There's a twistedness there. Then he wants us to forgive our dads of what, however they wounded us. And then he wants us to relearn what the Father really is like, because that's the truth that sets us free. So here are three revelations Jesus gives in this parable about the father. Number one, the father is releasing, not controlling. He is releasing, not controlling. The younger said, says, I want a son says, I want my share of the inheritance. Well, in that culture, the oldest son got two thirds. The younger son would only get one third, but you don't go, you don't get it until dad is dead. That's when you get it. So he's asking for it before the father is dead. He's basically saying, I value what you have more than I value you. I want what you have. And I'm sorry, dad, but which one of us dads would say, well, why don't I go out and sell a third of my stuff and give that to you right now? Not many of us, but the father's very releasing. And he sells a third, he gives it to his younger, the, the youngest son, and the, the youngest son goes and squanders it in extravagant wastefulness. Has anybody noticed this about God? That God will allow people to take their personality, their gifts, their resources, and do whatever they want with it. They can be against God. They can go out and have a campaign against God. They can go out and, and set up schemes of evil. They can, they can go out and build their own empire. They can go out and do whatever they want to. Has anybody noticed how frustratingly releasing God is? I know as a parent, oh my, parents, this is very frustrating for parents. God, why can't you be more controlling? God, why, why are you so into this freedom thing? I just, I'm trying to get these kids to, can't, why can't you just push a switch and make them do the right thing? I've raised them to do the right thing. Why can't, aren't they doing it? And parents, I mean, I've got four adult children. It's time to let go, folks. <laughs> it, we, we have to, the father has released them. So we release them, not just out there, we release them to him. The Bible says no one comes to the son unless the father draw them. Do you know the father has got every resource to draw people? People get to the end of their stuff. Everybody's going to run out of money. Everybody's going to run out of energy. Everybody's going to eventually be eating the pig's food. And then God breaks in. It's called provenient grace, a grace that goes before salvation. And he speaks and he draws and he makes them remember 
So that earlier this summer, we had a young adult, a, a family friend that wanted to get baptized. He wanted to do a special baptism. And my youngest daughter, Beth, asked if she could get baptized with him. And I had known Beth had asked before about getting baptized, even though she was baptized when she was little, but she had wandered and felt like she needed to reconfess Christ. And so she did the baptism and gave a testimony. And I said, honey, would you mind giving this testimony this Sunday at church? I'm speaking about the prodigal. Would you give your testimony? And she said, absolutely. I will write it. You read it. <laughs> so this is, this is my daughter, Beth. My story started in a Christian home. I embraced what I was taught and developed a personal relationship with God from a young age. But as I got older, I began to wonder, what if the God I thought I knew was really just an illusion? And if it should turn out that Christianity wasn't true and God wasn't real, what would I have left in my life of identity or self-worth to hold on to? These were the questions I asked myself. And as I finished high school, and then went on to college, I distanced myself from God and the church in determination to answer them properly. I poured myself into academics because I thought fulfilling my potential could satisfy my need to build something for myself I could be proud of, whether or not God was real or the question of Christianity came to nothing. I spent the next several years examining the logic of Christianity and my own experience with it to try to figure out whether it made sense, but no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't be sure of whether it was true or false. The question haunted me, and I strove to, an estab to establish an airtight solution to it, and as I continued to strive for perfection in my grades and extracurricular pursuits, in my senior year of college, my health started to break down under all the pressure. I didn't know then I was experiencing symptoms of multiple sclerosis, and I had no idea how long they would last, but I knew why I was breaking. I had taken more upon myself than I could bear, and my body wasn't strong enough to handle it. And as I found myself looking at my life and the question of Christianity yet again, I came to a prodigal moment. I remembered how much easier it used to be living in my father's house. I remembered that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And I knew that everything I was carrying, my health, my identity, the pressure to build an incontrovertible and true worldview. Now, just using that word incontrovertible tells you she's smarter than me. <laughs> the stress of chasing perfection in all my pursuits and my great uncertainty about my future, all of this, he could carry for me if I would lay it down, just like he used to when I was young, when I trusted him to guide me in the way I should go. So I decided to give it a try. That was nine years ago. I can't say that when I came back home to Jesus, all of my problems went away. Learning how to let go and let God carry my burdens for me hasn't been easy. I've often relegated myself to the role of a servant who has to earn back a place in God's trust and affection before being willing to draw near, even though he is always ready and eager to embrace me. But I haven't had to make it through the last nine years alone. As scripture tells us, 
The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. In the last nine years, I have seen more life and peace in my mind where before there was only death. And I'm so grateful to be restored as one of God's favored children. He is releasing, not controlling. Secondly, the father is forgiving, not harboring. He doesn't hold on to things. The reason why is he, he, he established it himself. He said in Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant. This is quoted in Hebrews 8.12. And here's how the new covenant's going to work. This is Hebrews 8.12. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Huh? How can an omniscient God forget anything? How can God forget sin and not remember it? Well, that's above my pay grade, folks. But he is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. And isn't it stunning that when the prodigal comes home, the only one thinking about sin is the prodigal. He's thinking about how he's blown it. He's thinking about how he's going to approach this thing. And when he gets home, father never even brings up the sin. You know who brings up the sin? First, it's the prodigal brings it up. He's got a good memory of what happened. And then the older brother brings it up. The older brother takes notes. This is what he did. He squandered your wealth to prostitute. He did this. He did this. He did this. He did this. And it's very human to harbor sin. It's human to hold on, to remember where everybody has failed. And God says, I'm making a new covenant. And it's all based on forgiveness. Where I don't just forgive, I forget. And so that you and I can come and, and, and come back to him. And really, this is a, somebody coming back to him. We can come back and say, God, I feel so bad. This is the 10th time. And he's like, what, what do you mean the 10th time? This is the first time. Well, what about... Oh, you forgot that. Amazing. So maybe your, your father was controlling and holding on and micromanaging and you need to forgive him for that and then you need to embrace that God, God's not like that. He's releasing. Maybe your father was a harborer that held everything you had ever done, everything you had failed at against you and you always could never prove yourself because he's holding on to every mistake and making you be good enough that you could never get. And so you need to forgive your dad for that. And then you need to relearn who the father in heaven is because he's forgiving, not harboring. And then finally, the father is generous, not stingy. In Matthew 20, we have the story of the day laborers and some are hired at nine and some are 10 and some at 11. And, and he agrees to pay each one an amount and they sign on to work for him for that amount. But at, he decides that the people that he hires right at the end of the day, he hires them at five o'clock. So they only work one hour. He decides he's going to pay them the same amount that he pays everybody else that has worked all day long. Well, the people that started at 9 a.m. came to him and said, said, this isn't right. This isn't fair. They shouldn't get as much as us because we worked all day long and they just worked an hour. And he said, look, look, settle down. And he, said, he asked this question, are you angry? Because I'm generous. He says, it's my money. I can pay anybody what I want to. Isn't that what, why, why the older brother is angry? 
is because the father's generous. This is, this is Isaiah 30 verse 18. And, and to read all of Isaiah 30, Israel has gone away from God. God told them, don't, don't go away from me. Your, your salvation is in repentance and your strength is in quietness. Come, come back to me. But they're like, nope, we're going to do it our own way. We're going to run away. We're going to go on horses. We're going to go. And God says, all right, go do it. Let's find out what your life is like without me. And I will make you a sign to everybody like a flag on a hill of what it's like to live apart from God. I will use you. I'll use even your rebellion to show don't rebel. And then in the meantime, he says this, and I will wait for you. I will wait for you to return so that I can be gracious to you. This is the heart of God for every single person in this room. God is waiting not to be judged, not to judge you, not to take you out. He's waiting to be generous to you. You just need to come home. You just need to come home. He sees us even when we're far away. And what's in his mind is when he gets back, I'm going to let him have, no, when he sees him far away, he starts running. Did you know in that culture, it was shameful to run, especially as an elder, because you made a cloud of dust everywhere he went, but he can't help himself. He's so excited that his son is coming home. All right, so the title, or the title of the message is coming all the way home, and that's also point three. So the prodigal plans on coming home, but not all the way home. Here's what he says. I will return. My, my father's servants have more than enough food. I will return, and I will say this. I'm unworthy to be your son. Forgive me. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. Forgive me. I'm not worthy to be a son anymore. Make me as one of your hired men. The, the hired men worked for subsistence wages, but did not live with the family. They lived somewhere else. So he's, he's coming home, but shame is keeping him from going all the way home. The shame of what he does has done, the memory of what he's done, the inexcusable things that he has done, he has extravagantly wasted his life on worthless things. So he comes home, he's got this little speech prepared. So he's coming home and he's, he's about ready to give his speech, but something very unexpected happens. The father runs and hugs him and kisses him. And he, he starts a speech. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then he stops. He doesn't say, make me as one of your hired men. Because he knows he's not holding anything against me. And the father says this, get the best rope and put it on him. Take this tattered thing off of him. Put a ring on his fingers. That establishes authority in the family. Get sandals back on his feet. They used to shame their enemies by making them walk barefoot. I want the shame taken away. I don't just want him home. I want him all the way home. So to get all the way home as a human being, you have to let God remove your shame. The blood of Jesus was not just shed so that you could be forgiven and go to heaven one day. The blood of Jesus was shed to remove the shame of what you've done. Maybe that's unforgivable in your own sight because 
He wants you all the way home. He wants to take away this. There's two types of Christians. There's the Pastor Tom type of Christian that's really close to God and God talks to him and gives him. And, and the prophet guy that you like or the guy that writes books or your grandma or somebody that somebody is in a different league spiritually than you are. And then there's just the regular people like me. And Jesus says, please, please, please don't settle for that. I want you all the way home. I want to put my arm. But to get, to get shame off of you, you have to let God love you. You have to let him put his arms around you. You have to let him kiss you. You have to let him speak to you. That's awkward, especially for men. Men are like, I don't like all that intimate stuff. Get over it. <laughs> Seriously, this is the secret to victory. You've got to let God love you. Jesus says, I'm standing at the door knocking. There's a whole church that's come back to God, but not all the way back to God. And so Jesus is knocking. You, you guys are doing church without my manifest presence. And one of the things he says is, I have, he says, I have everything you need. One of the things I have is garments of white to remove your shame. I want to put a garment on you. It's the best robe in my closet. It is the righteousness of God. It's the robe of righteousness. It's called the gift of righteousness. God has a gift for you that he paid for. It's his robe, but he wants to put it on you. The Bible calls it the breastplate, right? You need to put it on every day. You need to put it on. You need to remind yourself, I've, I've got, God's excited about me. And he's put me in right standing with himself. I am right with God. I am brilliantly white. The devil will say, well, what about yesterday's attitude? Yeah, I asked God to forgive that. That's gone. That's gone. I'm right with God. Why is this so important? Because if you feel dirty, you're going to end up doing dirty. Put the righteousness of God. Get that tattered thing off. Whatever has been stained, get it off. And put on that righteousness. And let him hug you. Let him love on you. Let him get shame off your spirit so that you and I can live all the way home. So with shame, you have to allow God to remove shame. You have to allow God to love you and to, to hug you and kiss you. And I don't know why you're so crazy about me, but go ahead. <laughs> it's a little weird to me, but go ahead. You just give him permission and he'll get that shame off you. But the older brother also is not all the way home. And it's confusing because he lives in the house and he's very, he's doing a lot of religious stuff that make it seem like he's in the house, but he is, he's not all the way home. He doesn't even know what the father's heart is. He doesn't share the father's heart. And it, but it's for a very different reason than shame. It's something called entitlement. Entitlement keeps us from going all the way home because it, it puts a chip on our shoulder that says, God owes me. I have served. I have suffered. I have given. And it's funny because new Christians don't have any entitlement. They're just, this is the greatest thing in the world. But it's as you are a Christian, as you serve, as you're part of the church, as your life gets cleaned up, that you think you're better and better and better. And, and I've earned something and God kind of owes me something. And so he's just filled with himself. I have kept all your commands. I have served you day and night. And you've never done anything for me. And the father's like, why are you trying to earn 
like a servant that which is already yours as a son. In 2016, I had an experience. I'm not going to give the experience. I'll just give you the truth that came out of it. I had gone through a very, very rough patch. I was on the other side of it. But the whole thing was confusing to me because I felt like I had obeyed God and I had sacrificed for God and I had done everything God told me to do and I felt like God had let me down and didn't do what I wanted him to do and what I told him to do and I prayed he would do, what I confessed he would do. And, and I, it was just all confusing to me that the, the trauma of it was past, but why did all of that happen? And, and then I had this experience and the Lord showed me that he... He allowed all that to remove entitlement from my spirit. To get that, God owes me anything out of my spirit so that I could receive all that he wanted to freely give me. The passage that has become a life verse is Luke 17.10. And in it, Jesus is talking about how faith works. And he says... A servant goes out and serves all day long. And when he comes in, the master doesn't say, you poor servant, you sit down at the table. Let me take care. No, the servant comes in after all day long. Then the master sits down and he keeps serving him. And after he's done working all day, serving the master, he says to himself these words, I'm an undeserving servant. I've only done what was required. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, after you have done everything I have told you to do, after you've served, after you've given, after you've done missions, after you've suffered, whatever you're going through, after that's all done, you need to say this to yourself. I'm an undeserving servant. I've only done what was required. Because God doesn't give on those terms. He doesn't give because he owes us. Because in God's economy, he doesn't owe you. What God gives, he gives freely because of his grace. Here's his terms. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 15. I can't remember if we have it. We do. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so you, that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. God could have done it any way he wanted to. This, these are his terms. We come strictly by his grace and by his generosity. Grace is not opposed to effort. He is worthy of our best effort, our best sacrifice, my utmost for his highest. We, we are all in, but Effort, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Grace, effort does not earn you. Everything God gives to us, he gives because we're his favored children. So at, at one and the same time, we have two confessions. I'm an undeserving servant, no matter how much I've done or how long I've done it, I'm an undeserving servant, and I'm a favored son. I'm a favored child. We need to own both of them. One lets go of entitlement and we have, to, we have to recognize our entitlement and we need to lay it down. And we need to say, God, you don't owe me. You don't owe me this. You don't owe me that. You don't owe me a healing. You don't owe me this. Whatever it is that you've been mad at, you need to lay it down because it will keep you from getting all the way home.